Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Oh, and Merfin Ken here with today's Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Hi there, Kieran. Hi, Ken. Hello there, Ron. I'm doing all right. I'm dying, dying to know your thoughts about elaborate celebrations. I'm talking about celebrations after scoring a goal, a try, a touchdown. Is there an etiquette there? Does somebody need to rein it in a little bit? I'll give you the context after you give me an answer, a blind answer, before you know what I'm talking about. I think I'm in favour of them, broadly. The more elaborate, the better? Uh, not necessarily elaborate. I mean, it's good if, if, if you can manage to make it look spontaneous. <laughs> you know? Uh, you know, something, for instance, as obviously um, pre-taught out is remember what was the guy's name who played for Fulham <laughs> remember he used to pull out like oh yeah Spider-Man. oh god I'll get him name? don't worry you keep you keep talking he used to pull the little mask out Vera, of his sock v- v- Brian Vera no it wasn't not Brian, Brian Vera he's Oh, Brian hey. Ruiz. No, it wasn't. He never did that kind of thing. Who's Brian Vera? Brian Vera is the guy who beat Andy Lee, but Andy Lee avenged that. Oh, thing. yeah, of course. Sorry. Yeah, Brian Vera. Um, <laughs> God, I thought it could have been worse. Like, could have I been think, literally Addy Wood. So. I think Obama, yeah, Obama Yang at, at Dortmund has, has done something similar, actually. Bringing an actual costume on yeah. to the field, and you're kind of like, oh, I don't know about that. Um, I mean, uh, you, you do sometimes see... I mean, the player who always seemed most uncomfortable in the immediate aftermath of scoring a goal to me was Roy Keane. He just was, he became incredibly <laughs> self-conscious and just sort of ran generally towards the corner and kind of, you know, with a slightly embarrassed look in his face. Sometimes he used to do this thing where he, he'd just jump and stick his studs into the turf. Yeah. And wait for people to jump on, on top of him. That was uh, that was about as uh, as elaborate a celebration he was, as Keno was. He was good joining in with other people's celebrations. Yeah. He'd jump up, jump up on them or whatever. Then Rio Ferdinand and David Beckham started started doing that. And I think Keane probably looks back at some of those goal celebrations where he jumps on the shoulders of someone and thinks to himself, What are you doing nah. What are you doing there? But remember, he was doing it before before Rio and Bex made it mainstream. Yeah, yeah see, I mean, I, I know you're coming from there with the, you want to make it look spontaneous. And as a result, elaboration might not be what you're going for. 
coming from the, a GA perspective, there's nothing but spontaneous celebrations in the GA. And I, for one, would like to see at least, you know, 1% of people taking a little bit of time. I mean, even after points or something, you know, really, that, that would really send shockwaves. <laughs> Instead of, like, knocking over, like, a 25-yard free directly in front of the goals and TJ Reid doing the completely uh, mental. Doing the sort of heart Yeah, the Gareth Bale heart. And then TJ Reid tries to also copyright it for use within the Irish confines. Facundo Sava was the name of it. Ah, Facundo Sava. How could I have forgotten? Hopefully Brian Veer is doing well with his career also. <laughs> we wish Brian Veer is very boxing career indeed. But the reason I bring all this up is because, the, I don't know if it was spontaneous or not, but Cam Newton, superstar quarterback for the Carolina Panthers, who, by the way, are 9-0, and as I say, in the US, Murph. Mm. That means they've won 9 and lost 0. Uh, they're going pretty well so far, but he's gotten in a bit of bother for what appears to me to be an innocuous enough celebration uh, after scoring a touchdown. It seems part of the issue is that he... Did he daddy too long? He just kept the celebration going for a little too long for the taste of many people. Apparently, it's okay, according to some comments I've seen, for a wide receiver to catch a ball and dance around like a lunatic. But a quarterback is supposed to be the picture of calm, supposed to be the smart guy in a team, supposed to be the one who maintains composure at all times. Right. It's going to be the topic for US Murph today. So why does a quarterback have to... Uh have to act in, I mean, as a quarterback representing the United States military in the 1950s. Listen, he's, he's, uh, he's your franchise player. He's your decision maker on the field, your general on the field. Kent. So he can't enjoy the moment if he manages to score a touchdown, which doesn't happen that often. Personally, I think he can, but you'd be surprised at the level of vitriol that has been sent his way. There was a letter, we'll talk about this to Brian, but there was a letter sent in by a mother of a child at the game saying that she wasn't happy with the... Um, I don't know if she said sexual nature of the celebration, but something well, along those lines. Which to, a pelvic thrust. There was, was a pelvic mentioned. thrust. I think you're looking for. I think you're scraping for stuff there. If you you can go online as you're looking at this and have a look at Cam Newton's celebration. If you want to pause this or well, continue I have, to listen I have to seen the celebration. I didn't even notice a pelvic thrust. No, I don't. it seemed to mainly be um, kind of uh, hand gestures. Some of those people who write those letters, Ken, I think, are really searching for something. And when they think they found it, that's enough for them to write in and yeah. make a complaint. We'll get to that a little bit later on, but the really sad news broke. Most of us woke up to it yesterday morning, Wednesday morning, about the death of Jonah Lomu, aged just 40. The Irish Examiner front page today, it, the entire front page is dominant, literally just the, the all black with the silver fern in the middle, which I suppose is as good an indication of any as the of the impact that this guy has made in world sport, uh, particularly the sports that are into rugby over the last number of years. I re- listened to a brilliant interview that Des Cal did with him just, I think it was September of this year, in which he fleshed out some of the background. You always hear parts of the story, but his father having a drink problem, being violent towards his mother, Lomu standing up to him, Lomu getting kicked out as a kid, basically roaming the streets, living the sort of uh, street life, getting into a grammar school and ultimately finding rugby and his redemption through that. But it was really... It's, it's really 17 years he was estranged from his family and that also meant, meant he was estranged from his mother by the way he just said I'm, I'm not going back there until eventually when he was having his first child his wife said to him look you've got to go back you've got to mend those bridges tell them about this and I think his father had stopped drinking by that stage so there'd been there was some sort of uh, appeasement there but it gave you a real sense of where this guy came from and how extraordinary it was that he achieved what he did in, uh, in rugby Ken you've been watching a lot of his tries yeah, a, compil- a nice seven and a half minute YouTube compilation of Jonah Lomu tries. 37, 37 tries for New Zealand. First of them, first couple of them, I think, against Ireland. Mm. Um, I remember watching all those at the time the, in the '95 World Cup, and uh, he was just amazing. I mean, there hadn't been anything 
remotely like him. Uh, do you know what it was as well? At the time, I think there was such a shock value because we didn't see New Zealand really playing rugby. We didn't. I don't know if the, those games are even on TV. If any uh, New Zealand Australia game might have been on TV or anything, uh, but he's so young at that stage anyway that he just wasn't. I don't remember him being known in this part of the world. I'm sure people were ready for him to make that impact in New Zealand and maybe in Australia. We'll talk to Matt Williams later. It was just the shock values. First of all, who is this guy and why is he why so is he much better than everybody else? I've just never seen an, an athlete like that. You know, a guy of that size able to... I mean, first of all, even just a guy of that size... You know, I mean, I, there weren't too many Irish rugby, rugby players who... Playing in any... No, there weren't. There, no. None. There was no one that big playing who, in any position for Ireland. But who time. was then faster than everyone else? Yeah, I mean, it was it was unbelievable. Mm. You know, and I obviously remember what happened to England uh, in the semi-final in that tournament. I mean, there's some... the Even just the photographs of it are so amazing. You know, I mean, when he's over the line, you, Mike Cat is there completely dazed and sort of legs is, are still in the air I think you know he's like a beetle that's on his on its back and doesn't know what's happened to it um, and, and he wasn't even going that fast when he hit into Mike Cat I am going to say I've watched it a few times today I think Mike Cat should have made that tackle he's not going to be proud of him Jonah Lomu had almost been failed by the time he got to Mike Cat there wasn't much momentum. I know he was an absolute beast, but I, I'm, I'm going to say I think it's not very important in the grand receiver things. But Mike Cat possibly should have should have at least halted the momentum a little bit there, Murph. No, I think uh, I, I think to be fair, his technique may have gone out the window when he'd seen what uh, Lomu had done to been, the other two yeah, people. He would have been scared. He would have been looking at this guy and gone, "I'm actually afraid of what's about to happen here." And, and the usual energy that you have to bring to those kind of collisions just probably was completely absent well I remember stage. South Africa brought in a guy uh, almost specifically to deal with him wasn't it James Small was that his name yeah. he was uh, he brought a lot of energy to those collisions I remember that he was much smaller than Lamu but it was like his his only job in there was don't let this happen again mm. and he seemed to have more of a game face on than poor old Mike Cat did I mean in fairness to Mike Cat he was the last man he was like, "Oh no, I can't believe this situation has arisen." Oh no, <laughs> you know he's got he's got past three guys. It's gonna it's it's down to me now, and he wasn't. I don't think mentally prepared for it. James Small was, and Loma didn't end up having much impact in the final. But uh, yeah, I mean he he was he was amazing. Clive Woodward had a oh, an, yeah. an anecdote, a little story. Yeah, the the Daily Telegraph um, compiled a series of anecdotes from uh, you know various people uh, in the rugby world, and the Clive Woodward uh, Clive Woodward one is actually very very funny. He was talking about a, a pre match uh, meeting that he would have with the players. Um, and so the night before, the uh, Clive Woodward writes, the night before a game, I used to list the two teams, and I said in a team meeting, there's absolutely nobody I'd swap man for man. I was doing my motivational talk. I got to the end, and Will Greenwood put his hand up and said, Clive, we're all with you, but on behalf of all the team, I think we'd all swap Austin Healy for Joe Lobu. <laughs> <laughs> Which is actually uh, fair enough. All right, we'll get to Matt Williams in a little while on his memories of Joe Lomu, but Murph, let's, tell us, let's find out what the Irish immigrants around the world are up to. That's right, you're a real Irishman. You get the potato yeah. I left in your dressing room there? I got the potatoes yeah. and the puccine. Huh? And the puccine. Oh, yeah, there you are. Bone and bread, yeah, in uh, County Meath, a place called Navin. So it's uh, Pierce Brosnan Immigrant Shoutout time on, but first, big news uh, from Pierce's world, Navin's most sexually charismatic import, export, has uh, blasted the latest Bond movie, Spectre. This isn't going to go down well. The story was kind of weak, it could have been condensed, it kind of went on too long, it really did. 
It's neither fish nor fowl. It's neither Bond nor nor born. Meow. Am I in a Bond movie? Not in a Bond movie? How could he do such a thing? Uh, surely he doesn't have a go at Daniel Craig as well. Does he? No, he doesn't. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he is a mighty warrior. And I think he found a great sense of himself in this in this one with the one-liners and a nice playfulness there. That just, is a bit of it. Just get a tighter story and he'll have another Even classic. that is patronising, That is, that it? is it. Oh, he oh, just he, found a little bit finally, of himself. I mean, how, yeah. many, how many movies has Daniel Craig made now? Four. four, four Fourteen. Four, so he's finally beginning to get a bit of a sense of what the character's about in the fourth movie. I know. That is vitriolic. It is. I mean, a top-class actor Ben really should be getting that in the first movie. I yeah. wouldn't have brought it to you, but I just, I felt... Yeah, yeah. I, can't, I can't sit here and talk about Pierce Brosnan without mentioning that. Yeah. I read that and I went, yeah. you know. It's done. It's the, it's the Broccoli family, I, I really feel. Do we have it actually any correspondence, or were you just bringing us... <laughs> no, no, on with the piggy oh, okay. It's quite a lengthy one, on, so settle right. in. Okay. Uh, this week from uh, John Reardon, a uh, loyal listener, originally from Cork, currently residing in Melbourne. Having heard your plaintive appeal for a Pibazo a couple of weeks ago, I felt moved to respond. <laughs> a couple of months ago, my wife and I were getting married in her hometown of Timisoara in Western Romania. I mentioned to one of my wife's friends, Cyprian, about the Ireland versus Romania Italian 90 game and its importance to Irish fans, in particular those of us that were in the 8 to 12 age bracket in 1990. Somewhat chancing my arm, I wondered aloud to Cyprian if any of that Romanian team lived in the city and how great it would be to meet someone from the other side of that game. A couple of days later, Cyprian came up trumps and said he had arranged a short meeting with Josef Rotariu, ex-Romanian international, and most importantly, taker of Romania's third penalty. Ooh. Some brief internet work revealed that he played for Romania, Stoi Bucharest, uh, moving to Galatasaray for a couple of seasons before returning to Stoi Bucharest, and finally, Politinica Tumusawara, who he subsequently coached. Perhaps most impressively uh, was that after coaching Tumusawara, he returned to play for them in the 2012-2013 season, making 10 appearances and scoring 3 goals at the age of 51. <laughs> so there you go. That's pretty good. Uh, at the appointed time, Cyprian, me, my parents, who were equally enthused about meeting the man, and my 3-year-old son, less so, uh, met him at his regular gym, SmartFit, in the city. We spent about 15 minutes chatting, and he was unbelievably friendly, honest, and interesting. Would you like to hear a summary of the conversation? Yeah. Yeah, yes. why not? Uh, on taking the massive penalty against Ireland, with total sincerity, he said he knew that he was going to score his penalty as he'd gotten all of his practice ones. Yosef also mentioned that he was supposed to take the first penalty, but Georgie Hadji decided that he would go first. <laughs> uh, on man marking Maradona in Italian 90. This was when Maradona was a god. Yeah, okay, John, we know. And he remembers... Yeah, did they play? Oh, of course they did in the group. Yeah, yeah, he remembers hundreds of Maradona Italian Argentinian fans uh, chanting outside the Romanian team hotel all night the night before the game. He was a bag of nerves. Hadn't really slept the night before, but after the first five minutes of the game, he got a few touches. He settled in and was happy with his performance. <laughs> <laughs> this is brilliant. Result: a credible one-one against the world champions, which secured their passage to the second round. <laughs> and a bonus: those Italian fans ultimately turned against Maradona. Yeah. By the end of the tournament, there when you go. Italy yeah. ended up playing Argentina. Yeah. Something that Cyprian mentioned to me afterwards was that Josef and his wife adopted a neglected 16-month-old girl a couple of years ago. They were paying for her to have innumerable operations to correct. Severe, severe limb defects which requires a measure of fundraising if you'd like to contribute the link uh, and story is easy found if you look up Cassandra Votariu's story in short not really legendary player and great guy wow keep up the great work John That's Reardon it's great to hear from Joseph Votariu it really is it really really is is there a photo with Joseph there is and we will put it up uh, uh, and by the way if any of you have sent us in P-Bezos over the last years your photograph may well be in our annual as we have two pages set aside for your awesome uh, photographs. So, well done, you guys. And the challenge is now set. 
Mm. Track down all five. Any of our P-Bezzers out there, track down the other four remaining penalty takers. Yeah, extra, extra marks for Tom Day. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Let's get in touch with Brian Murphy. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game. No matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. And he's out on his feet. Frank Cappuccino's going to let him keep going. Got it! Touchdown! Touchdown, 40! Brian Murphy, I was going to ask, how are you? More to the point, where are you speaking to us and our beloved listeners from today? I love bringing your your listeners with me to the Hawaiian Islands, boys. I am on Maui. I am gazing out on the Asia Pacific through a, uh, I'm out on a patio of our suite. That's right, I said it, our suite <laughs> as uh, KNBR, your station, the station you guys have roamed the halls and and dropped your anchor in. Uh, mm-hmm. We've taken listeners to the Ritz Carlton in Kapalua. Boys, you should have entered. If you'd have entered, I'd have <laughs> fixed it for you to win, and you'd be here with me. As it is, we're here watching uh, watching a little U.S. sport and uh, snorkeling and massaging and uh, cabanaing. If that, if if I can invent a word here in Hawaii. Well, so, I'm, I'm sorry. Aloha, can you boys. can you explain that final word? I just won cabana. Yeah. Well, you know, you guys have the cabanas, right? You guys go to what? Don't you guys go to the where's the uh, where's the premier sun destination for the Irish? Is it Portugal? Is that the Ma- spot? Magaluf, Magaluf, the Costa del Sol in uh, in Spain. Uh, yeah, that's where you guys go, and yeah. then you get the cabana, right? You get the cabana, which is like your own private tent slash oh, yeah, suite yeah. by the pool, and you get the service with the wine and the beer, and you sit there yeah. in your shade and you're on your chaise lounge. It's your little retreat. So we've arranged for all the Cambiar uh, people here to have their own cabanas here at the Ritz. It's how we do, boys. It's how we do. It's See, nothing if, but first class. Yeah, if you'd been talking to Simon, he'd know all about it. But myself and Owen, being two of the more hirsute members of uh, the second <laughs> captain's team, means basically that we don't tan very evenly, Brian, which means we tend oh, to just stay out of the, that whole mess altogether. Really, well, really. we can get a hey, Believe me, I got some of that in me. There, I lather it on, man. SPF 30, SPF 50. I look like, uh, I sort of look like a snowman or a yeti out here with the white stuff on me but it's all good boys we're in hawaii and uh and thanks for uh, accepting my um you know accepting my gloating here as the warm tropical breezes the trade winds of the south pacific caress my phone line here brian interestingly in the nfl there are a few teams and three teams currently well undefeated. two teams up and well three until last weekend oh yeah okay and uh, one of the teams undefeated is the carolina panthers the reason we want to talk about them in particular this weekend is uh, the celebration, a touchdown celebration by their quarterback, Cam Newton. You're laughing away there, Brian. It didn't seem too outrageous by the standards of American sport, but he's annoyed a lot of people, it seems. Oh, my God. Isn't that amazing? I love the things we cling on to. But it's true. The Carolina Panthers are in the news for a couple of reasons. One, they're 9-0, and which nobody really saw coming. I mean, yeah. I mean, respect to Carolina. They were a playoff team a couple of years ago when the 49ers and and our then hero, Colin Kaepernick, beat them in Carolina. And Cam Newton, we've talked about various points through our time together since his days in college at Auburn University when he led them to a national championship. He's one of these guys here. I mean, honestly, on the shortest of lists of the most physically gifted, as far as like if you could assemble a quarterback in a factory, the height, 
the arm strength, the uh, the leadership abilities of a Cam Newton. The guy is just a he is just. In fact, when he came out of college, Jim Harbaugh, when he was with the 49ers in happier days, he said, "Boy, Cam." Newton. He said, "I'm gonna." I think the exact phrase was, "He said that's raw, that's raw grade plutonium." I think was the phrase he used to describe Cam Newton's uh, immense natural gifts. So he's always been a guy to keep an eye on. But what he's done now is not only lead his team to an undefeated record, but start what can only be considered, I mean, dance gate. I guess we'd have to call it, where he celebrated a touchdown run over the Tennessee Titans and a 27 to 10 lead and icing the game away with. A fairly elaborate dance, boys. Now, we're all veterans of the sports world. We've all seen celebrations. You guys have seen yours over there in your European football. Uh, who was that guy? Uh, wasn't there a British guy, an English guy? Uh, what was his name? He had like a French last name. Didn't he go into the crowd once and like do a flying drop kick into the crowd? Oh, yeah. Once? That, yeah. that was Eric Cantona. It wasn't very celebratory, though. It was more violent. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I'm just saying, you guys have seen um, post-goal sort of uh, shenanigans. Well, and here in, in football, this goes back, you know, all the way back to the 70s. We had Billy White Shoes Johnson. He was the proponent in the 70s. He would do a dance where he, he'd kind of knock his knees together. And that was sort of one of the early dances. And it's gone on through the years. The icky shuffle with your Cincinnati Bengals in the 80s, the fun bunch of the Washington Redskins in the 80s and the early 90s, the three amigos, all these things through the years. But what Cam did was, well, first of all, he's a, let's just get this out there, boys. He's a damn good dancer. All mm. right. You, you can't pull this off if you have poor moves. He's quite the hoofer. And he got what I would say was a, a dance that went probably three seconds longer than your average NFL dance. And three seconds in an NFL dance is an eternity when you're just captivated by a man's dance moves. So, of course, the Tennessee Titans, humiliated and embarrassed, one of the players came over and you know tried to start a fight with Cam Newton. Don't you dare dance three seconds too long in my end zone, son. What I think really lifted this to the next level was Cam Newton's response to the violence from the Tennessee Titans was simply to break out an extra dance move. And that's what I think we've all been focused on in the great tradition of a West Side story when, you know, the, the, the sharks and jets are going to rumble. We turn to ballet in the great tradition of a beat it, perhaps, of a Michael Jackson video where gangs are going to rumble and Michael settles it with his dance moves. We're saying here that Cam Newton, when confronted with violence, extra dance moves are the answer. So I endorse it, boys. I know there has been pushback. Famously, a woman wrote a letter to the Charlotte newspaper saying, how can she dare explain this to her nine-year-old daughter? Our answer is, hey, explain that Cam is an awesome dancer and he had some fantastic moves on top of it all, guys. And I hope I don't screw this up because I am a 48-year-old Caucasian who lives in the suburbs. But the move, the dance moves, I believe, was called dabbing, dabbing mm, slash yeah. hit dem folks. So uh, take that to your nearest disco, guys. The hit them folks part, I hadn't heard. The dabbing, <laughs> I had heard, though. I mean, uh, you, you referenced uh, Rosemary Plorin there of Nashville, Tennessee, who, who wrote the letter to the Charlotte Observer, uh, <clears throat> uh, talking about herself and her nine-year-old daughter. Because of where we sat, we had a close-up view of your conduct in the fourth quarter, the chest puffs, the pelvic thrusts. I mean, I read this, actually, before I watched the, the, the video, and I expected... You know, like kind of Miley Cyrus at the VMAs type that level of yeah. uh, of uh, of Twerking. filth of filth, Brian. Uh, and this is just this was just basically an elaborate, but in no ways 
a suggestive or a gratuitous celebration. I'm just kind of wondering why the NFL is so pious about stuff like this because, I mean, there not there a rule? It, I mean, this has been enshrined in rule that excessive celebration. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact phrase that the NFL uses. I'm sure Brian I think you got it. it. I think it is excessive yeah. celebration. I do. Yeah. I think that's it. And by the way, guys... I, Forgive my um, Hawaiian-based lack of research here, but you do you definitely get a little lazy over here when you're eating pineapple and getting rubdowns in the cabana. But he did not get flagged for that, did he? Did he get a 15-yard penalty? No, 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 no. I mean, I, I think this is this is this was uh, uh, very much a storm that broke uh, afterwards. Maybe. Uh, yeah. So I mean, yeah, there is a penalty for excessive celebration. I believe you're allowed. And again, now I'm going to have to apologize for my lack of um, of sharp. Uh, uh, knowledge of the excessive celebration rule, but I believe you are allowed a small window to dance, but it must, I think there's some sort of, it's viewed, when it's viewed as excessive, I guess it's like pornography, right? You yeah. know it when you see it, <laughs> You know it, when right? you see it, exactly, uh, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I would say that, um, yeah, you were expecting something, uh, Elvis Presley on the Ed Sullivan show, right? Shaking his hips. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Miley with the twerking, you know, Madonna and Britney kissing at the VMAs, all these things that we've seen through the years that have sent, you know, Janet Jackson's nipple at the Super Bowl. These are the things that have uh, rocked American America's uh, puritanical sensibilities. I'm on your side, man. As I said, it, it to me, Cam is he's so much fun and he's so charismatic and his dance moves were so high quality. I really do feel like you get extra, you get extra wider berth for being a skilled dancer. Mm. And uh, Deion Sanders used to do this in the day. He had his moves. If you can go back again on my on my weekly, sending you guys to the YouTube clips. Uh, we're still. Well, hang on, Brian. Uh, I got to stop you there. We're still. Deion Sanders. Yeah, I mean, we're still struggling to get on top of last week's ones. <laughs> we, we we don't <laughs> we haven't got all all day to watch your suggestions. Well, if you're gonna like, if I'm gonna suggest some dance moves, and you guys gonna grade them through the years, yeah. you're gonna start with your Billy White Shoes Johnson from the Atlanta Falcons. You're gonna move on to your Icky Shuffle in the '80s. Deion Sanders had quite the nifty sort of shuffle with his feet. It was hard to describe how he did it. I, I don't have the skills to do it, but Cam's dance moves. Um, hey, listen, this is the day we're living in. What's wrong with having a little fun? The guy didn't do anything. It, it wasn't taunting anything. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't unsportsmanlike. Uh, now, of course, if you want to take something super fun like this, the, the the backdrop to it, if you want to get really serious about it, is that some people would suggest that race is involved, of course, that Cam Newton being a black quarterback dancing like that is offending the sensibilities of white people who don't like their overly demonstrative African-American athletes. So if you want to get deeply sociological, you can put on that hat, too. So it's out there. It has been discussed. Yeah, it's it's kind of like one of these situations where, like Elvis on the Ed Sullivan Show, they'll only be able to film Cam Newton from you know the waist up. <laughs> that's the next. I don't, I don't I'm know. If, use that. Uh, yeah, I'm going to use that far on the air. By the way, thank you for that, Kira. <laughs> no, it's, that's my pleasure, <laughs> Brian. We were uh, doing uh, having a look at this story on the way over myself and Murph here, and we happened upon a conversation on ESPN between. Stephen A. Smith and Skip Bayless on this subject. I'm going to describe it as a rather inane conversation, Brian, but Skip Bayless in particular seemed quite... Well, actually, I say in particular, Skip Bayless was arguing the point that this is, that oh, maybe a wide receiver should be allowed, uh, allowed to celebrate like this, but a quarterback should keep his head in the game. He shouldn't be... He's the guy who has to stay calm and celebrate a very in a very subdued fashion. Uh, he shouldn't be the flashy guy. Stephen A. Smith disagreed in fairly vehement terms, and then they both sort of argued like children for a little while. 
Well, you just like you've opened up a whole new world. We can get off of Cam Newton and get onto the Skip Bayless, Stephen A. Smith phenomenon. Please, um, please. I don't even know if you guys watch that show. I think it's called First Take. I don't because I can feel my brain cells dying while I watch it. It's like one of these things. Honestly, honest to goodness, it, it, we talk about sports media in 2015 in the U.S. That is exhibit A for what why you would run for the hills, that show. And believe it or not, though, people watch it. And, of course, it's on the air for a reason. And you have two unbelievably theatrical guys in Skip Bayless and Stephen A. Smith. And they will take the wildest positions. And Skip will do anything to push people's buttons. There is a firm belief that, like, he, he has never be- – Never had true conviction of any take he's had, but he will say what he needs to say to get a rise out of people, to get you, for example, to comment on it, to get you to say, oh, my God, Skip Bayless was criticizing him for not having his head in the game. It really is forehead smacking stuff that they produce on a, on a daily basis, guys. So if you are looking for just sort of comic relief, crack a beer and watch these two guys shout at each other over, as you said, the word inane uh, stuff. So I can't do it. I can't go to the Skip Bayless, Stephen A. Smith card. They generally uh, they generally push sports debate to the point of comic ridiculousness, and this is a classic one. I mean, look at us. This is what we've done for the for – the, honest to goodness, guys, I would say NFL Week 10, I think we just finished, right? Uh, that is the biggest story out of NFL Week 10. I mean, it really is. I mean, so what else you got? You got the Patriots staying undefeated by beating the New York Giants. You know, you got the Cincinnati Bengals stumbling. They were undefeated. They lost. But the number one takeaway story is Cam Newton's dance. Was it appropriate? Where do you come down on it? And what that says about us as an NFL watching nation, I'm not so sure, guys. Well, there is a big story breaking in and the NBA, Brian. Again, maybe you're too relaxed there to even be reading up on your sports stories. But Kevin McHale. Oh, I know this. Yes, yeah, I do know Kevin this. Kevin McHale, show. Yes. Houston Rockets coach. Sack, this is a guy who... You looked him in the eye on not six months ago. Yeah, he was the coach. And asked him if he had the bottle for this job. (laughs) Well, maybe not, but... Uh, I did see him coaching his team to uh, ultimate defeat against the Golden State Warriors, Brian, in the conference finals last year. So how did he go from one of the top two or three teams in the country to getting sacked? That's a great question. And Kevin McHale himself is worthy of of just kind of pondering because the guy is one of the great basketball players in the history of the game, part of the great Boston Celtics of the 80s, of course, Bird, McHale, and Parrish are all you need to say. Those big three, Robert Parrish, Kevin McHale, and Larry Bird, were that great dynasty that took on the Lakers through the 80s. So Kevin McHale is, is, is a bit of a regal figure in American basketball, and he commands respect everywhere he goes. And the, the Houston Rockets, uh, obviously off to a terrible start, four and seven. You wouldn't think they would pull the plug so soon. Now, maybe some stuff will come out a little bit later on, but I think the immediate takeaway is – just what's going on here with our beloved Golden State Warriors? By the way, by the way, I want to say it was like six, seven, eight months ago on this show when I was talking huge Warriors to you guys, mm-hmm. and you guys were like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 U.S. Murph, easy, buddy, <laughs> tap the brakes." You were saying I was, I was running amok, and guess what happened? Next thing you know, Owens wearing his Splash Brothers shirt and his Warriors <laughs> scarf. The Warriors are winning the NBA championship with an unbelievable 67-win season, beating LeBron James and the Cavaliers. And now here we are, historic start for the Golden State Warriors, 12-0. Steph Curry doing things that maybe are drawing comparisons to Wayne Gretzky and Michael Jordan and Babe Ruth as far as setting himself apart as American sportsmen. So I just want to say, compare and contrast the Houston Rockets, who said, oh, you know, they actually were part of this chorus. And this the Warriors championship this summer was greeted by 
robust skepticism from all the NBA people. It started with Kyrie Irving of the Cavaliers saying, hey, if I was healthy, it would have been a whole different story. Well, maybe. And then James Harden going on and on and on about, hey, you know what? I really should have been the MVP. I was the MVP, blah, blah, blah. Oh, really? Oh, okay, fine. And then uh, Ty Lawson of the Denver Nuggets joins the Houston Rockets and says, wait till I make Steph Curry play some defense this year. He had it too easy last year. Oh, oh, really? Okay, you think so? And then Doc Rivers of the L.A. Clippers, an esteemed guy. We all like him, but he said, you know, to win a championship, you have to have a lot of luck. Look at the Warriors. They didn't have to play us or the Spurs last year. Oh, really? Okay, fine. So file all that away. Warriors are 12-0 and and taking aim at history, and then you split screen it with the Rockets. All that crying, all that whining, I should have been the MVP. They start 4-7, and seven, they blow out Kevin McHale, one of the great figures in basketball, and it probably is due to James Harden. And I'm not saying he's a, he's a malcontent or a really bad guy, but he's not establishing himself as a winner like Steph Curry is. And I know Harden and Curry are buds, and Harden plays on Team USA, so I'm not painting him as, you know, I'm not telling you guys he's a villain, but what I am saying is right now, he doesn't have the goods to have a team around him or be a winner like Steph Curry and the Warriors are. And look what happened. They blew it up already, 11 games into their season. So I'm just sort of sitting back and letting the facts speak for themselves, boys. When the Rockets start to cannibalize themselves, getting rid of Kevin McHale, wondering where they're going, the Warriors are just sitting back saying, hey, we're still waiting to lose a game. It sounds so like, yeah. there's my little sermon from the Mount, guys. It sounds like somebody's enjoyed the NBA season so far. Okay. <laughs> Brian, just before I let you go. Sitting on a, sitting on a patio in Hawaii well, talking about that his was Golden straight, State Warriors. That was That's, a straight gloat, right? Yeah, that yeah, was yeah. an aloha gloat yeah. right there. There was okay? very little analysis. It was just full <laughs> gloating. Yeah. Now, brilliantly done, Brian. I just have to tell you what is sitting in front of me at the moment because I think you'll be interested. It is uh, the second captain's sports annual, Volume 1, Brian, out now. I have it open on page 48. And a brilliant story here from the one and only US Murph about his time in Ireland. I don't want to ruin anything. I don't want to give any spoilers, Brian. But I will say it's accompanied by a photograph of Woody Harrelson as a barman in Cheers. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, I just got chills. I just got chills here. Goosebumps, my friend. You're telling me that the dream has come true. The annual is produced... The now. magic, the comedy, the life lessons of a second captain's annual in it has been de- rolled off of Joseph Gutenberg's printing press into your hands. <laughs> yeah, we, we hand pressed it every word. Oh man, I cannot wait for my FedEx copy to arrive, and maybe one day we should arrange for uh, some sort of joint signing, right, guys? Oh, yeah, book that signing. Sounds good. That sounds like a plan to Brian, me. Brian, amazing stuff as always. Thanks so much. Enjoy Hawaii. Uh, you guys are the best. Aloha, boys, and mahalo Aloha. to you. All right, hope you enjoyed that chat with U.S. Murph. Uh, 
as per usual in our conversations with Brian, about a million things there of interest that I'd like mm-hmm. to pick up on, Murph. I do, how excited he sounds about uh, the basketball season so far is something that we can't let skip by. Mm-hmm. He was almost, I've never heard Brian really gloating before. Yeah. There he was, just compared Steph Curry to Babe Ruth there, by the way. Yeah. We just let that slip by. I think uh, I think there was a time when the 49ers were going really well and something bad had happened to, to the Seattle Seahawks. I definitely recall an edge coming to Brian's voice that I'd never actually heard mm-hmm, yeah. uh, heard before. Uh, but, um, I, yeah, what, are you not checking out the Splash Brothers? Oh, no, I am. What's going on? Oh, oh, you just went for the playoffs, is that it? What, I watched you, them. You, you, you're just going to wait? I follow them on Twitter. There's always a few sports center tweets about Splash Brothers doing something. I'm, prepared, well, I'm, prepared to watch a, I'm prepared to watch a Vine up until at least Christmas. He's also back on about, the, without harping on too much, about Skip Bayless and Stephen A. Smith. Uh, these <laughs> these um, rather sensationalist mm. commentators on ESPN. It's the fu- Stephen A. Smith, Smith shouts so much that you assume this guy can't be sincere in what he's saying. Nobody yeah. who actually believes something needs to shout that much about it. And Bayless was almost the opposite in the exchange we saw about the Newton celebration. He didn't. He was only half committed to it. Which he, and you could see him getting kind of annoyed that Stephen A. Smith was shouting so much because he was thinking, "Listen, Stephen, neither of us believe in these points." Yeah, it's let's a- not worry about it. Certainly, I think that uh, disagreement in whether it's a podcast, whether it's a TV show, I mean, it's at the heart of in, inter- of entertainment. You're looking for two people to disagree with each other over fervently held beliefs. But I mean, that's the key point of it all. You're basically just setting these two guys up to talk about something every day that they disagree on. And I mean, if the two of them have, you know... If if they have a brain cell, they're going to agree on most things. <laughs> now that may be up for debate because I, I mean that one. I've seen a few of these debates between these two these two guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one about Cam Newton, perhaps unique in that neither of them had any major opinion on it at all. I mean, I think a lot of the time, surely one of them will have a strong opinion, and then maybe the other one is lukewarm about the whole idea, but will fulfil the role of, right, I disagree completely with you. But the the idea that you can set two guys up every single day on something that they 100% disagree on, uh, yeah. I, I think that when the time comes around for them where they actually disagree on someone, it will be the, the boy who cried, cried wolf. We mentioned Brian's contribution to the Second Captain Sports Annual Volume 1. That's about to hit shelves at Easton's and all good bookstores. There's loads of detail on that and secondcaptains.com. Do have a look. I think you'll really like it. I hope you'll really like it. Uh, you can pre-order it there as well on secondcaptains.com. Right, Ken's going to tell us what's coming up in the Irish Times Second Captains Football Podcast. That's... Yeah... <laughs> They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But I don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'm going to leave it there. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you shawny man? Well, Owen, this weekend is going to be the uh, Real Madrid against Barcelona in the Spanish League. Uh, we're going to talk to Sid Lowe about that and um, kind of this very swirl of issues surrounding some of the stars. And Liverpool Man City, busy week, busy day. Liverpool Man City and, and uh, uh, Real Madrid Barcelona clashing, so we're going to have to I'm get recording. El Clashico, Ken. Don't worry, I'm sure, don't worry, Simon has that edited out, it's fine, nobody's hearing this bit. Water coolers all around uh, the English-speaking world, that joke is being made right now. But <laughs> actually, oh, that was... He's like uh, Colin Hood from The Fast Show, that's basically what you're dealing with here. 
I didn't hear it anywhere before it entered my little brain. No, it's good. It's good. I mean, it's nice. very good. El Clasico, okay. Just to... um, and then the other thing is um, Sweden became, I'm, I'm going to say, the last team to qualify for your tournament. In fact, they qualified more or less simultaneously with Ukraine. But with Sweden, it was a, there was a little bit, you know, Ukraine you knew almost after the first leg they were through. So I'm going to say Sweden were 24th of 24. And uh, Zlatan Ibrahimovic played a big role in getting there. Uh, we're going to talk to the editor-in-chief of Offside magazine about Zlatan's uh, role in that team and his importance to his teammates and um, his importance to the country actually on why stop just at the team Matt it's a whole country is leaning on him sounds great Matt Williams is ready to talk about the impact of Jonah Lohman I guess really the personality of the man Matt you've met him a good few times thanks very much it's always great to talk to you obviously you, through your job you did get to chat to him social occasions coaching against him when did you first meet Jonah? I met him um, firstly we used to go, as in when I was coaching the Waratahs, the Waratahs, Queensland, Auckland and Canterbury would go to Noosa Heads, which is not a bad spot if anyone knows it. Up north of Brisbane, it's a gorgeous spot. And we'd play trial games called the South Pacific Championship. And it was just a way to have a competition and trial games. And we'd all stay at the same venue. We'd all train at the same places and play each other. And you get to know people pretty well. And um, I sat next to him one night at a barbecue and... He was then, you know, this was a long time after the 95 uh, uh, World Cup and he was an absolute superstar and he was the most humble and gentle, lovely young man. And the very few times that I saw him the next four or five years, you, you know, when you played each other, the first thing he did was walk across the room, shake hands and talk to you and just be this lovely, uh, gentle Tonga, New Zealander that he was, and you had to sort of um, put a mental change between this giant rampaging bull on the field and this gentle, lovely guy off the field. And I think with Jonah, it was that he was born on the wrong side of the tracks, and I think it's pretty well documented that he said he he did some things that weren't real smart when he was young. But at a very young age, he saw that rugby had helped him, and that was when he went to Auckland Grammar and and the influence of these wonderful um, senior New Zealand players on him as a very young boy. Some guys realise that when they're 40 and 50 and they're in later life, he realised that when he was about 19 that rugby had changed his life. And he was very humble and very, uh, um, if you like, um, really thankful at a very young age for where he was. Uh, it, 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 he was an extraordinary person then and it just made it uh, even more sad to hear of his passing yesterday when uh, when you think back on those days. Yeah, it's interesting, Matt, that you should bring that up. The, I suppose the background that he came from, we have mentioned an amazing interview you gave to Des Cal quite recently in which he expanded on a lot of that. And one of the things he said was that when he went to that, that grammar school, he was still, he's basically in off the streets, really. And he was, and there were all the issues with his father, who he stood up to and ultimately was kicked out of home, all, all those things. But there was still that, there was that aggression within him. And of course, it was channeled through rugby, but he said it wasn't necessarily as simple as that. I think his headmaster, somebody at the school, got him a boxing, got him uh, some pads, got him a bag, and told him, listen, if you're in class and you're getting worked up and there's some, some rage there, whatever it is, you just go out and take it out on that bag. Uh, which, it's amazing that he got from that point of this per person growing up with this, uh, with this inside them to being this sportsman who was able to do it on the field and live a good life away from it. What's even more amazing, Owen, is that 
he got such international notoriety at such a young age. Yeah. But he, he dodged all those bullets where people lose the run of themselves, like so many of the young guys we see at, that, that become this front-page superstar and they can't quite cope with it. He had all those, um, uh, if, if you like, he, he had all the ducks in a row to fail and he didn't. And I think it said a lot about his school, which was Auckland Grammar School and the people that he, these co- coaches, but also about the culture of New Zealand rugby. That There's one or two guys fail in New Zealand rugby, but gee, not a lot because the, the senior players are so wonderful. I think one of the great things for him was when he went into that um, New Zealand side as such a young guy, there were these wonderful men that I, I don't know really well, wouldn't say we're best mates, but guys that I would see and talk to and I have huge respect for like Zin Zambrook and Sean Fitzpatrick and Olo Brown and you know um, they, they, they were just wonderful guys like Michael Jones another one just just a wonderful human being that you, you you can't help but admire and I think they had a big influence on him and keeping him grounded and you know some of those guys had also come from some pretty tough backgrounds and they had been in had the, had the New Zealand rugby uh, culture and the and the and the way they present themselves in, in the, the need to represent the black jersey in such a positive way. I think that really had a big influence on him. And I've heard I've heard him say it, heard him speak about it. But but I would also I also think within within all that was that um, Jonah innately was a good person. And you know you can't you can't always take away a, a human's being's nature he didn't have a bad nature he had a bad environment and rugby allowed his nature to come out so he still played really aggressive rugby there was a i'll tell you some in a story in a moment about some of the things he did but his nature was that of a very nice a gentleman and a guy that was a appreciative and rugby allowed him to break away from the the, the aggressive and and depressive environment and allowed him to step into uh, an environment that allowed his true self to come out, and um, it was it was a self that um, he he should be proud of. His family should be proud of, and rugby should be too. Well, tell us those stories then about his aggression on the field. Oh, <laughs> mate, John John was one of those ones where you just applauded. I, I remember we went to uh, Eden Park. Uh, oh, it was I think it was '97, and I think um, I had a very young side. Uh, I think. Um, Christian Warner was playing, which many, many of your listeners will, will know, and Keith Gleeson. And mm-hmm. we uh, we decided, we looked at their team, and it was the best team, best provincial team I'd ever, I have ever coached against. Better than that great Munster side, just, but it was a great side. You know, I, I, those names I just mentioned, Zinzan Brook, uh, Sean Fitzpatrick, Olo Brown, uh, Michael Jones, uh, Joely Vendiri on the other wing, Cashmore at fullback, Carlos Spencer at 5'8", um, uh, Roni Clark at, in, at outside centre and Stensness at inside centre and, of course, Jonah on the wing. And they were just awesome. They were booting everyone. And we said, "If look, if we kick the ball today to these guys, they're going to boot us by 50. And uh, my, my great number eight, which was uh, uh, the former Springbok captain, Turn Strauss, said, if anyone kicks the ball to Jonah, I'll be up there and I'll tackle him. You know. And so he said, no, but we're not kicking the ball to him. We're going to kick the ball out or we're going to run it. And Michael Jones had put that much pressure on our young out half, um, which was Manny Edmonds, who's now coaching Bézier in uh, France, 
then he kicked the ball. Instead of passing and running, we kicked the ball. So something in, in the first 15 minutes, we kicked the ball to Jonah something like nine times in the first 15 <laughs> minutes. And he'd run the ball from everywhere. And I have a vivid memory of Turn Strauss keeping to his word, sprinting out of the line to hit uh, Jonah and him doing a somersault backwards as Jonah just bumped him off, bumped off the next four guys and scored in the corner. And about the 20-minute mark, we were four tries down. They had the bonus point already. And you just sat back and you, all you could do was applaud because they were just a, a junior side and he was um, certainly the greatest winger that I've ever seen play. The the style of play that you talk about there, is, is that what made him... Because we talk about the background and where he came from. That sort of stuff only emerged over the years, I think. What his what do you think was at the centre of his appeal to people outside of rugby or to people who had the uh, passing interest in rugby? Was it just actually the way he played on the field, which looked like how you would imagine if you're designing a computer game for rugby, you would Jonah Lomu is probably the player you'd design. Well, you, you think about it now in a, in a game of very big men. He was 120 kilos and he did the 111 seconds. I mean, it's amazing. And that this is this is uh, 20 years ago. No one had ever seen it. The wingers were like David Campuzzi. David's not a small man. David's 90 kilos and was very fast. And you know, you look at look at who the Irish wingers were. Rory Underwood for for England. You know, was a, a, a wonderful winger and a, a, a top class winger. These guys were 30 and 40 kilos lighter and maybe a second over the hundred slower. This guy revolutionised the game. It, was, it wasn't a, an evolution, it was a revolution. And he did things that no one has ever done in 150 years of international rugby. Um, he was, he was, it was simply amazing. I mean, you would, it would go to the game just to see Jonah play. And we did, like people did this in the early 90s in the amateur days. And I think the other part about Jonah was he brought the world to rugby as rugby went professional. Mm. He, he was the top superstar in the game as we stepped from uh, in English uh, private school professionalism into the world of professional rugby. He, he took us across that line and um, much of, of the world's um, focus was on him because he was just above everyone. And, and it, it, it was an amazing step that he took us on and we all owe him for that and he would never admit that and would never say it but georgie gregan was on tv here last night pretty much saying the same thing and um i i certainly remember going to the sydney football stadium when i was my last year coaching the waratahs was 99 and we had about thirty-five thousand people i think that night and i reckon every one of them we, we were going to lose and everyone knew we were going to lose but we were very brave and we fought exceptionally hard but Jonah was the, was the act. They came to, saw, to see Jonah play. It's like people came to see Brian O'Driscoll play. People came to see Michael Jordan play basketball. Don Bradman play cricket. People came to see Jonah Lomu play rugby and say, I saw him. And uh, it, it, it was worth the interest for he was He was fantastic. Yeah, it's a perfect tribute. Listen, Matt Williams, thanks so much. Pleasure, mate. And, um, you know, just, just everyone out there, it's, it's, it's sport. This is, uh, this is someone's life. We, we, we all often get caught up in winning and losing, but... Uh, this was a gentleman and a lovely man, and it didn't matter whether he was a great rugby player or, or not a great rugby player. He was a wonderful human being, and I, uh, I really mourn his loss. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. 
Richie Sadler's here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. I'm just having a look here, Murph, at Tian Strauss, the Springbok, mm. who um, <laughs> decided to take it upon himself to stop Jonah Lomu. And that ridiculous sounding team that uh, they that Matt had to face in 1997 with Carlos Spencer and all these other guys involved at provincial level at that stage. Tian Strauss looks like a rather an intimidating enforcer type figure, mm. but didn't uh, stop him doing somersaults at the expense of Jonah Lomu's time. Uh, the 11th Google image result that comes up for Tian Strauss is assigned. Uh, photograph of him topless by a swimming pool. So there you go. Richie McCaw, it, the <laughs> news in New Zealand rugby days, Richie McCaw has done his press conference, so he's retired. We knew this was going to happen anyway, but I was struck by a couple of things here, lads. The stats, first of all, right? Go on. I, you, I know, Ken, you're looking at me, GBC, you're not, you're not going to be able to give me any stats that will make me think any more of Richie McCaw than what you already think of Richie McCaw. But um, wait for this. Well, you could tell me he scored more tries than Brian O'Driscoll. I can't, although he has scored 27 tries for New Zealand, which isn't bad for a back rower. How many Brian, how many Brian just get? 46 or something. Yeah. 148 tests. I'm going to turn to you, Murph. Ken's not going to be impressed by anything. 148 test matches, 131 test wins. He was, that, sorry, okay, yeah. That's he was the first all-black to play 100 tests, right? And he actually ended up captaining the team 110 times. So nobody had ever played for New Zealand 100 times, and he captained them 110. So it all sounds a bit Robbie Keane so far. Played 61 times in New Zealand, Ken. This is a stat that Robbie Keane is going to struggle to match. He played 61 times for his country in his country. How many times did he lose, you reckon? Zero times. Oh, come on. Two. <laughs> two is an amazing ratio. Oh, he lost yeah, twice. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, think, I think this one's gone now. But no, in future, I know, but don't came, ever play this game with Ken. But he came back to the microphone. He was off there searching through his bag for something. Then he came back to make that contribution. Yeah. I thought that he, uh, I thought they never lost at home. Rarely, Ken. Rarely. Even the greatest teams lose. And three-time World Player of the Year. His next career move, Murph, this might impress you. Oh, Have you heard about this? Uh, I, I think I did. Go on. But maybe it was... No, he's a helicopter pilot. Helicopter pilot, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's on the way to getting his commercial license. That is... That's reasonably impressive. And doing some charity work as well. I so cannot understand why anybody would want to be a helicopter pilot. Oh, here you go. Having a bit, pop a big Vic again. Victor Co- well, Victor Costa was a plane he's pilot. He's an airline pilot, airline no, pilot. in fairness. Yeah. Airline, are you, are you differentiating between airlines and helicopters? Very much so. Okay, what's the helicopter? You're shooting helicopters. Uh, they're very dangerous. Uh, I don't know why anyone would get in one uh, willingly, if unless they had absolutely no option. Um, it's it reminds me of you know I saw that movie recently Everest. Mm-hmm. Why would you do it? Why they, would you do this? Are they statistically that dangerous, or do you just? get the feeling that they're dangerous no they are they're very dangerous Alan. they are compared to uh, even if a guy compared to commercial aircraft uh, they're they're uh, I mean just look at them mm-hmm. I mean they're not st- structurally speaking it's this is a more implausible way of flying than <laughs> than uh, you know there's there's more that can go wrong with a helicopter I mean, I've been I've been on them before, and I had to be I had to if you want to go out. I was one of, in the days when I used to work in the North Sea. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what? 
No, sorry. Just, what are you laughing at? No, just the way you said it. Some people mightn't be familiar with well, your I used to, career I, in the North Sea. Well, I used to work in the North Sea, and the only way to get out to those uh, platforms in the middle of the North Sea is, is via helicopter. So you have to get into one of these things and fly out there, and it is unpleasant, um, very unpleasant. I mean, why anyone would do it who didn't have to do it? And Richie McCall, definitely there's a lot of other things he could do with his life. I really do not understand why he would do it. I mean, it's, it's, it's morbid even to have this conversation. But it is a puzzling, in my mind, uh, career choice for uh, uh, you know a garlanded sportsman uh, who could quite easily just earn a living, like sitting like a fat slug in a in a TV studio, sounding off. <laughs> Why he would want to get into one of those contraptions? Between two thousand five and two thousand nine, Ken, there was an annual average of one point four four fatalities per one hundred thousand flying hours in non-military helicopters. Of the same period, there were thirteen point two traffic fatalities per one hundred thousand population in the United States annually. Why do people get in their cars? Uh, they don't strictly have to. I don't know. Well, they have to, though. Not necessarily. You know. Well, I mean, I, th- I think that there, there are more options to someone hopping in a helicopter than there are to someone... You know, there, if you're getting in a helicopter, there's always... I'm sure that there's always an, uh, uh, an alternative, if you look if you look hard. Enough. I wanted to ask you about Anthony Cunningham before we go, Murph. Oh, by the way, I, I just want to say the yeah. drip feed of uh, personal information about Ken Early's, uh life. I think we should do this like once a month. My, fa- just my father worked as a diver for a long time and one of the things, one of the least, one of the worst things that he ever had to do was when these, um, when these helicopters would crash, he would often have to go and pull the bodies out of them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, maybe I listened to him too much, but let's just say that he would never get in one of those things unless he absolutely had to. Murph, Anthony Cunningham. Uh, yeah, he's gone. As Your uh, reaction to his incendiary statement? Yeah, well, it's more the statement really more than anything else, isn't it? I mean, the news, not that it was strictly inevitable, but I mean, it was 99% inevitable, really, uh, that he had to go. Once the players uh, say there's a vote of no confidence in the manager, your hands are nearly mm-hmm. completely tied. So, he didn't go straight away. Uh, it took a long time. Uh, I think that the job of the Galway County Board in finding another manager was made a lot harder by that. Um, but his statement, anyway, that he released on Monday, an hour and a half before Ireland, uh, <laughs> Ireland Bosnia, which as a result maybe didn't get quite as much media coverage as it would have otherwise. Uh, I consider this a kangaroo court decision led by a core group of players orchestrated with the help of others outside Galway, motivated by a desire to unjustly extend their lifespan as intercounty players, placing personal agendas above the greater good of Galway hurling. That is reasonably incendiary. Having a massive goal with the players, and the presumption is he's talking about the GPA there. That's what I've read anyway, is the yeah. presumption about the people from yeah, outside the county. Yeah, I mean, the GPA act are offered to act as mediators in a situation like this. And I suppose if not them, then who else? Um but yeah, I mean, it's it is tough. I mean, you you talk about the players, and you can say right stridently as we did on this show in relation to the Mayo footballers. Right, well, what else are they going to do? They know what it takes to get nearly to the top of the mountain. You know, they they have had a much longer, much more uh, consistent spell of dominance in Connacht and success outside Connacht than the Golda Hurlers have done. Um, and it, you know, so there, there's a, there would have been a lot more sympathy for the Mayo footballers than there are for the Gola Hurlers because what we've seen from the Gola Hurlers is one good year, two bad years, dating back 30 years yeah. now nearly. Um, and it does obviously put a huge amount of pressure on the players, but at the same time, they have pressure anyway. The pressure is to win the All-Ireland. That hasn't changed 
from the point of view of the players. The players have to go and win the All-Ireland next year. Uh, whether they'll feel any more pressure than that because they have a manager that they think gives them a better chance of doing that than they had with Anthony Cunningham, you know, I think they can probably they can probably live with it, you know. Okay. Um, and it looks like uh, Matty Kenny, the Kula manager, uh, he could, he's the favourite at the moment to take over, but sure, we can watch that as the, the weeks progress. Great stuff. We'll wrap this up. Do listen to our football podcast out today. It's really good stuff uh, we had we spoke to a Swedish contributor who is the editor-in-chief of their big football magazine over there who told us that he sells 2,000 more copies of his magazine when Zlatan is on the cover than usual so I'm going to mention I'm going to forward sell that Zlatan is talked about on our podcast <laughs> and hope we get 2,000 more <laughs> listens How that sounds good maybe uh, maybe it will work all the of them way. from Sweden maybe the, the floating <laughs> Zlatan customer in Sweden will exactly. pick up on our podcast thanks Kieran. Thank you, Owen. Thank you again. Thanks, Thank again. you, uh, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. Thanks for listening. Take care. Which one is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys.